This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I've been working a lot on wind power issues recently, with a special, though not exclusive, focus on offshore wind. In particular, individually and as part of a coalition, I've submitted comments to regulatory bodies concerning the possible permitting of the Coastal Virginia offshore wind project and uh, legal filings that may come from that. Others in my circle have been engaged in battling offshore behemoths much longer than I, filing legal challenges to industrial offshore wind facilities up and down the East Coast. David Stevenson, a longtime colleague and director of the Center for Energy and Environment at the Cesar Rodney Institute, and more recently founder of American Coalition for Ocean Protection, is in many respects leading this battle. And he's here to discuss the numerous problems with offshore wind today. David, thanks for being with us. Well, I'm glad glad to be doing this with you, Sterling, and, and welcome to you and Heartland uh, enjoying this fight. Uh, I started this in 2017, so I've been doing it for a while. Yep, you have. Uh, so, Dave, before we jump into the problems with any particular offshore wind project or offshore wind in general, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, because it's been a while since you've been on, please tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to work on energy and environmental issues in general, and offshore wind in particular, and tell us a bit more about the two organizations you represent. Sure, happy to. I am with the Caesar Rodney Institute. It's a state policy think tank. We uh, look for free market solutions to all kinds of problems. We work uh, primarily on uh, health health insurance issues, uh, education, state budget and uh, spending issues, and uh, then we have the Center for Energy and Environment that I run. Uh, we have, uh, beyond working just in Delaware, which would be the normal thing for a state policy think tank, uh, because of my involvement in a number of issues that had federal impact, I, I've gotten involved nationally. Actually, I've wound up uh, consulting in 27 different states on energy issues. So it's it's been, been a fun run. Uh, my history is I am a serial entrepreneur. I can't stop. Uh, I worked at the DuPont company for 23 years, started seven businesses for them, uh, took an early re- retirement, started six more businesses in a nonprofit. And, and when I look at these public policies that we constantly look at, I'm looking at them from, from two different perspectives. One, how is it affecting the state and national economy? And two, um, how how is it going to help uh, uh, be, be a conservation issue. I, I avoid the term environmentalist these days because it seems to become, have become a religion, uh, but a lifelong conservationist. And uh, because of that, I got involved in things like uh, creating the first greenway in the state of Connecticut. The term didn't even exist yet. Started the first oil recycling program in the state of Connecticut. Uh, in, in Delaware, I, one of my businesses was a construction business. I got involved in uh, 
building towards uh, building using the standards from the National Association of Home Builders on, on green building, built the first house in Delaware to those standards and created the, the green, I was one of the co-founder of the Green Building Council in Delaware. So uh, 2010 and 11, I started getting involved with the Caesar Rodney Institute just at, at the time when they were deciding, let's take another look at Delaware's economy and see where we really need to fix things. And we came up with uh, four centers, which we're still working on. And because of my background, uh, uh, I, I wound up, one of my jobs at DuPont, by the way, was uh, helping to create the solar panels that are still used today uh, back in the mid-1980s. So I wound up with the energy and environment uh, uh, portfolio. Uh, <clears throat> in 2019, I worked on opposing bringing power ashore to Delaware State Park on the ocean, uh, which we won that battle. And uh, it wound up delaying the project that was going to start in 2022 to starting in 2026. So I had some time on my hands and I started looking around that there were a lot of other small beach communities that were, were trying to fight projects. And I started uh, calling those folks and they were all very happy that they weren't the only one working on the problem. So we, we, we founded the American Coalition for Ocean Protection and uh, been working on that ever since. So you've been in the midst of the battle with industrial offshore wind for at least five years now. What are your general objections or concerns, uh, objections to it or concerns about it? Well, it, it started in 2017. The Maryland Public Service Commission approved a uh, project off the coast of Delaware without any input from anybody in Delaware. Uh, it's in federal <laughs> waters, so, so they didn't need Delaware approval. And my initial look was at just the high cost. It, it was ridiculous. Uh, U.S. Uh, EIA, Energy Information Agency, uh, puts out estimated levelized costs for various forms of power. Offshore wind is, is off the charts the most expensive way you can do this. So, so from an economic standpoint, it's bad. But as, as we get more and more involved in this thing, you see it, it's not just the cost, it's also negative environmental impacts, and just, just a whole range of, of negative environmental impacts we'll, we dig into a little later in our conversation. Uh, but it, it's, uh, and, and you know, it, the reason to do this basically is, is to save carbon dioxide, and it's an expensive way to do that. There, there are other ways to do that uh, uh, much more efficiently. Yeah, so even even if you thought preventing the emission of carbon dioxide uh, was a, a worthwhile goal, uh, offshore wind is a bad way to go about it. It's 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 more expensive than carbon trading, more expensive than onshore renewables of any type, except uh, maybe battery. If you just try to go pure battery, uh, impossible. Yeah, we go but, along with you on that. Um, <laughs> but but so there's no economic justification for offshore wind projects. You can't. You can't say this is going to be a net good for the economy. Even John Kerry agrees with that. Uh, he, he has publicly made the statement that the president's uh, 30 gigawatt uh, target will have almost no impact on, on the climate. And he's exactly right. If you if you use the uh, the magic formula from the EPA, uh, the, the government says we're going to save 44 million tons uh, a year 
that results in a temperature change of uh, 0.004 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and the 44 uh, metric tons is probably twice what any other calculation would, would likely come up with. So you look at that, and then you look at, I, I just uh, did an analysis on the three projects that were approved by the New Jersey Utility Commission put them all together in a summary and found out that the cost per ton of carbon dioxide saved averages about $3,500 per ton. Put that in perspective for the audience here. Uh, we have a carbon tax that's, that's, that's placed on uh, uh, electric generators called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. That tax right now is about $14 a ton compared to <laughs> saving uh, using offshore wind at $3,500 per ton. It's ridiculous. So leaving economics aside, what are some of the environmental concerns raised by offshore wind in general and for specific projects? Well, it's pretty much across the board. Uh, what, what's happening with, I've been involved now in public comments for each of the major uh, projects that have been approved. It started with Vineyard Wind off of Nantucket. Uh, I've been involved in uh, the Ocean Wind project off New Jersey, the, the two projects off of Delaware. I've, I've, I've looked at the environmental impact statement from uh, Virginia and, and the state of New York. And what they're doing at this point is pretty much cutting and pasting uh, from one project uh, to the next as they write these environmental impact statements. So they've all got common common issues. And, uh, well, we, 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 we can start with a list here, uh, Sterling. So, you know, I, I think number one, and, and the issue that's probably the most likely going to kill these projects is the impact on endangered species. Um, there's, it, it, it's got a very different level of, uh, for example, standing in a lawsuit if you're working on endangered species versus uh, environmental, uh, other environmental impacts. And we, what we've got, the, the most endangered species on, on the coast is the North Atlantic right whale. And these are, by the way, they're called the right whale because they were the right whale to catch back in the day. Uh, they feed on the surface, so they're easy to find. Uh, the amount of uh, blubber and oil keeps them floating on the surface, even if they're killed. So this particular species almost went extinct. Uh, then we, we made some rules to start saving them. They came back. The, the population grew to about 400 animals. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a, a big mortality event over the last half dozen years because of vessel strikes. Uh, because these animals feed on the surface, uh, they're and, and and you know just below the surface, they become a, a target for any kind of vessel to possibly hit them if they're in, in the shipping channel. So that 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 potential for for killing uh, the right whale is, is big, and you've got construction noise, and in my view, more importantly, operational noise that uh, is going to be loud enough that it's going to chase the whales out of these uh, wind lease areas. And every one of these lease areas is bounded on at least two sides, and some three sides, uh, by the major shipping channels. So you're, you're literally going to chase them out into the most likely place they're going to get hit. 
And every one of these uh, lists uh, in, in their construction and operations plan that uh, the whales are common year-round in every one of these lease areas up and down the coast from South Carolina to, to Maine. So it's, it's a common problem for each of these projects. And that, that's going to be the, the number one issue. And there's, we don't know, uh, because these turbines they're using are twice as tall as, as the ones that were used in Europe and the, and the seven turbines that have been built in the U.S., it's, the, the, the noise level goes up. But you're, it's kind of a, acoustical engineers are, are guessing. But what they're finding is that uh, you, you, you've got um, uh, a, a federal law that says you can't go above 120 decibels uh, uh, to harass the whales. And it looks like, looks like we could be as high as 175 decibels at the base of some of these turbines. Now, for those of you who, like me, didn't originally know what decibels meant, uh, if, if you go from 120 to 130 decibels, each 10 decibels is 10 times. It's a logarithmic scale. It's 10 times the noise. So imagine the increase by the time you've, you've gone to 175. That's, now, yeah. I, I'd, like, I'd like to uh, put it into perspective for our audience. So first off, whales are particularly vulnerable because they move. They, they they view their world with sonar, so anything that disrupts uh, their ability to communicate, to uh, to navigate, um, it puts them particularly at risk. And the right whales um, are protected, you know, theoretically protected by two different laws: the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammals Protection Act. And the Endangered Species Act says basically if a species is if, – if they've determined a species is endangered and it's on the endangered species list, it must be protected basically regardless of the cost. You, got, you, you, you can figure out – you can take economics into account when you're figuring out how to protect it, but not in whether it's listed and must be protected. And the, uh, the agencies involved in determining – What's a safe loss for the North Atlantic right whale says 0 0.07 whales a year from the current population can be lost above natural mortality. So less than a, a, a less than one whale, not a single whale can be lost to excess mortality uh, and still keep it from being uh, possibly going extinct over over a fairly short period of time. And yet um, they want to put thousands of wind turbines right in the critical habitat for these whales that are supposedly protected by federal law. And, and during construction, uh, they're being given what's called uh, uh, permission to take a whale, which can be anything from harassment to death during the construction process. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, they don't know how many whales are going to be killed uh, uh, after, after construction from the uh, continual operation. So, so that that's that's a big one, and and you know the noise from these things does uh, fall off with distance from the turbine. So the estimate is that you'll get down to that 120 cap on sound uh, about a mile away. But unfortunately, all of these projects are set up on a one by one mile grid. 
So you're, you're going to have the noise extending a half a mile in, in each direction. So you're, you're going to have the entire lease area above the 120 most likely. So, so that's a big one. Uh, by the way, uh, when, when, when the federal government, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, does these environmental impact statements, they, they use ratings of uh, something's going to have a major impact, a moderate impact, uh, negligible, or, or none. And the topics I'm going to be talking about here are all listed as major problems. So, for example, with the whales, they recognize it's a major issue and then don't have mitigation for it. So, you know, we haven't, we're not going to do anything about it. And, you know, they had the same, they've approved two projects so far. And in both of them, the whales were considered major. In fact, uh, the, the Vineyard Wind project that was approved first was actually in, in the critical habitat area for the, for the North Atlantic right whale. And they still approved the project. I mean, they just don't care. So the other other issues we're going to talk about are also major impacts uh, based on the federal study. So one of the biggest ones is commercial fishing, uh, even stated this way in the record of decision, is will abandon these project areas. They're going to wind up uh, losing tackle. There's going to be increased vessel collisions. Insurance rates are going to go up. It's, it, there's difficulty just navigating around all these turbines. So, you know, Boehm itself is saying uh, commercial fishing will, will abandon these areas. If you put these together, the cumulative impact of, of all these turbines, it's an area bigger than the state of Connecticut that you're going to lose fishing. I just did, uh, I did public comments on the Empire Wind Project off of Hudson Bay. And, I, and in the environmental impact statement, they have this map that shows uh, where the most scallops are caught. Now, scallops are the second most valuable uh, catch on the entire East Coast. So they had this little map and it looked like a bullseye. So you had the center of uh, the bullseye was where the most scallops were caught. Then there's another ring, second most uh, likely place, and the third ring, the, the, the lesser spot for catching scallops. The wind lease area sits exactly on the center of the bullseye. How do you do that? Well, the problem is they go through setting up the lease areas as one process and then improving the specific project in a second process. They're supposed to do an environmental impact statement at the first stage, but don't. If they had done the full environmental impact statement at the first stage, and in fact, there's a lawsuit in, uh, from one of the groups in New Jersey about this, uh, they would have seen that this lease area was way to, right on top of the of the of the most valuable spot to catch scallops, and they wouldn't have put it there. But since uh, they've already approved the lease area, they've already leased it. Uh, people are paying money for the lease, and and now you find out where it is. It's ridiculous. And uh, so so you you know if you if you hurt the fishing industry, one you kill jobs, but secondly you you inter interfere with uh, uh, food uh, security. And, and you're going to raise the cost of scallops, which are already expensive, and, and everything else you catch off the Atlantic. And, and environmental inspect statements are supposed to take into account historic and traditional uses of the areas covered, and they just fail spectacularly to do that. It's so bad, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware, that a, a group of states have now uh, – they're, they're trying to come up with a way to compensate the fishing industry. <laughs> they say, we're going to put you out of work for expensive, unreliable, 
uh, deadly wind turbines, but at least we're going to pay you off for making you unemployed. Exactly. And let, let me read you. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Sterling, I'm, I'm going to read this exact quote. <clears throat> this was from the solicitor of the U.S. Department of Interior in December of 2020. It is important to observe that any compensation system established by a lease to make users of the lease area whole financially does not negate interference. Indeed, the, the creation of such a system presumes interference. As such, any proposed compensation process should not be viewed as curing any interference since the statute does not provide for such a cure. There is a, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act is, is what justified all these turbines. And in it, there is a section that simply says, uh, you can't uh, uh, reasonably interfere with historic uses. Well, those historic uses, obviously fishing, yeah. uh, visibility, uh, what you're looking at from the shore, and uh, things like navigation. And what we'll be talking about here, all three of those are, are considered major impacts in the environmental impact statement. And these projects, based on what the solicitor said in 2020, should have been uh, uh, should have been unapproved. Well, let me ask you something. Um, so uh, it, it, it's going to interfere with shipping. It's going to interfere with the industrial sightseeing, whale watching. Commercial fishing, recreational fishing, I suspect. Um, might help. It might actually help recreational fishing. You've got these new, uh, basically, stone reefs at the base of each uh, turbine. Certain species might actually increase, but everything else fails. Except that the recently I've read uh, studies that um, the offshore wind turbines decrease oxygen levels in the water, and increase turbidity you know the make the make the water dirtier so it's not so good for fish <laughs> low oxygen yeah, that, low oxygen yeah. and dirt getting in their gills is not a recipe for uh for survival for fish yeah in fact in in europe uh, a lot of the offshore wind projects are in the s southern half of the, of the north sea oh. And according to some reports out of Europe, uh, that southern section of the North Sea has become a fishing desert. So, yes, there are potential neg negative impacts on total total fishing. So let me ask you and, this. Yeah. With, with all this in mind, because, look, the environmentalists, I don't think they care a whit about the commercial fishing industry. I don't think they care about whale watching or even beach, you know, beach enjoyment. Um but they're supposed to care about wildlife and wild system, you know, wild lands, wild areas. They're, they're, they they claim to be caring about that. So why are they not up in arms in light of these problems opposing? You know, I, I know there are some specific whale groups that are, but other than that, it seems to me that they're they're apologists for the harms that these wind farms are creating. Yeah, well, there, I think there are two reasons for that. Uh, one is they think that uh, they've come to believe that uh, climate change crisis, which I know you and I don't agree that it's a crisis, uh, but they do, that that is more important than anything else, uh, that uh, nothing else, uh, you know, kill whatever you have to, destroy whatever you have to. It's just those rich people at the, at the beach that are going to be impacted. Uh, so we, we, we've got to do this. 
But the second thing that's going on, uh, there was a group called Save the Whales that did an analysis, uh, Michael Schellenberger's group, that uh, they looked at who got donations from the wind industry. And group after group, NRDC, Sierra Club, uh, uh, Audubon Society, you got uh, uh, about 20 different environmental organizations that have taken funds from the offshore wind developers. So they're, they're getting paid. What they tend to do is they'll go in, for example, in, in uh, Nantucket. Uh, they gave uh, the city and two environmental groups 20 million bucks to share if they would uh, not oppose it. Uh, they, down here in Delaware, we have a inland bay, and there's, there's a center for the inland bays that is an environmental group. Uh, they've received $100,000 from, from the uh, wind developers. And uh, the guy that was running that now works for one of the wind developers. It's, it's what they do. They, they hire people. They pay money. Uh, apparently, a small beach town uh, can be bought for $20 million. Uh, that seems to be the going rate. They're, they're doing that all up and down the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there's your reasons. So why do you think the Biden administration has embraced offshore wind despite its inefficiencies, its high costs, and harmful environmental impact. I mean, let's be clear. We know they want to fight climate change. We know that. Uh, but there are a lot of other ways. <laughs> Even if you believe climate change is a crisis, not just that it's happening, because everyone knows it's happening. The question is, is it a crisis? So even if you believe it's a crisis and that we've got to do something to fight it, why go with the least effective, most expensive way of doing it. I don't get it. Well, environmental groups have decided this is the best way to go. And and Biden's basically throwing them a bone. It's a political gesture to extremists. Um, If you look at the states that are doing this, so it's it's basically, you know, we'll throw in North Carolina and Virginia, which are, uh, when Virginia approved this, it was, it was a a purple state. Uh, We had, had, uh, Democratic majorities throughout the entire state. But uh, the rest of the states are you go up the coast, it's uh, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, New York, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, uh, uh, and Massachusetts, which are extremely liberal states who who just, uh, again, like Biden, are, are, are going to look at, you know, how can we do these things? They all see, see the wind industry as a job creator, which it, it's not. Uh, I, when I looked at the uh, New Jersey projects, the benefit cost analysis came up six times more for the cost than the benefits as far as economic benefits. But they don't have onshore wind uh, uh, resources. The, the wind isn't blowing in those states high enough uh, to, to, to build off uh, onshore wind. Um the more northern states, uh, solar is not a particularly good uh, use, and and people are pushing back on on solar farms and onshore wind projects anyway. So the idea was, well, we've got this vast area out in the ocean. Uh, we'll we'll put them out there, and people won't complain as much. And uh, but we'll be we'll, we'll we can say we we're doing something. So I, I think that's uh, that's all part of it. Well. Uh... David, we're we're running out of time. Before we close, I want to ask you, big picture, 
if you make just one point, what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion of industrial offshore wind and the government's promotion of it? Uh, I, I would say the, the best thing we can do right now is let's take a look at Virginia where we've got a shot at changing things. Governor Yunkin has created what I think may be the best state energy plan in the entire nation, except for supporting offshore wind. Uh, I'd like to see us all get on, on Yunkin's back, because uh, he seems to be a reasonable guy otherwise, and, and ask him to take that, out of, uh, take that out of the energy plan. Otherwise, he's on the right track. And uh, so I, I would suggest uh, let's focus on, on Virginia on that one. Well, Dave, it's been a pleasure to speak with you again. Sorry it's been so long. I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners. Anytime, and Sterling, I think the next time I'd like to talk to you is about uh, advanced nuclear energy. It's something I'm trying to promote. <laughs> there you go. Next-gen next gen energy uh, nuclears. Listeners, thanks for checking on us today. Please check Hartland's website as we follow the work of David Stevenson and the other scholars at the Cesar Rodney Institute and issues surrounding wind power and offshore wind more generally. Please also continue to follow us as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws that affect you. In addition, please consider attending Heartland's forthcoming 15th International Conference on Climate Change at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista in Orlando, Florida from Thursday, February 23rd through Saturday, February 25th. The seats are filling up. Uh, there's only a limited time left to get in. Uh, please contact uh, Heartland and get your tickets and show up. With the I'll be there. Uh, glad to hear it, Dave. Look forward to actually seeing you in person. It's been a while. So what you should know about it is that, you know, we're going to have a lot of scientific and policy experts, people tops in their field or in influential positions. So if you want to know what's going on on climate change, you must be there. Be there or be uninformed. Also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.